From Washington, D.C., across the nation and around the world, stand by for an overview of the hottest topics and people being discussed on air, online, at the coffee shop and across the backyard fence, powered by the research of Talkers Magazine, the national conversation. It's time for the Michael Harrison Wrap. Here's Michael Harrison. Thank you, Victoria Jones. Monday, February 14th through Friday, February 18th, 2022. It was a week that started with Valentine's Day and ended with Eastern Europe teetering on the brink of war and Eastern Canada teetering on the brink of chaos. We're about to embark upon a powerful hour of Black Belt Talk Radio, during which your tolerance for hearing different but legitimate points of view about the pandemic, the economy, race relations, crime, violence, censorship, climate, CNN, Fox, Trump, Hillary, Biden, and scandal will be be tested. We've got lefties, righties, and fence-sitters. Please don't get angry. Just listen closely and while doing so, maintain a degree of educated skepticism, regardless of whether or not you agree. We'll be joined by Kevin Casey at Talkers with the top 10 topics of the week, Todd Feinberg in Hartford with a Connecticut COVID update, Mike Ben Dixon in Toronto with a Canadian perspective on the truckers' demonstration, Victoria Jones in Washington with a report on the latest misadventures of Prince Andrew, Michael Riedel in New York with his take on urban crime and GOP politics, and Matthew B. Harrison with info about the latest lawsuits against poor little Facebook. An impressive array of influential yappers from across the country with microphones, smartphones, and digital recording devices, sharing their observations and the feelings of their target constituents with whom they do a daily dance of affirmation in a fragmented, noisy world where we try to avoid the modern-day syndrome of seeking victory at the expense of truth. Welcome to the Michael Harrison Wrap, heard coast-to-coast and around the world on great radio stations across the U.S. and the U.K. The past week's hottest political and social topics discussed in the American talk media. Information is gathered from a variety of sources, including data tracked by the broadcasting trade publication Talkers Magazine, of which I'm editor and publisher. Okay, here we go. Joining us now is Kevin Casey, executive editor of Talkers Magazine. Kevin, give us a rundown of the 10 most talked about stories on talk shows in America this past week. Thank you, Michael. At number 10 this week, the UK Prince Andrew scandal tied with a wide variety of celebrity gossip stories. The Queen's second eldest son finally settled to the tune of millions of pounds with the woman who claims he sexually assaulted her, embarrassing his mother as she is about to celebrate 70 years on the throne and tarnishing the already dinged-up reputation of the monarchy. On the celebrity front, the late cinematographer Helena Hutchins' husband and son are suing Alec Baldwin and others associated with the production of The Western Rust after the actor allegedly shot her in what was described as an accident on the set. At number nine, winter weather and climate change. More snow and cold weather grip portions of the nation this week, which I guess is normal for February. But can be counted on to feed the ongoing conversation about climate change. At number eight, big tech and social media tied with CNN troubles. Facebook, or Meta as it's now being called, has agreed to pay $90 million to settle a decade-old class action lawsuit over a practice that allowed the social network to track users' activity across the internet, even if they had logged out of the platform. And that's not all. Texas sued Meta for exploiting the biometric data of millions of people in the state, including those who used the platform and those who did not. The company, according to the suit, violated state privacy laws and should be responsible for billions of dollars in damages. 
poor little Facebook can't seem to catch a break these days. At number seven, a tie between U.S.-China relations and the Olympics. Beijing Winter Olympics Games grind on with their share of athletic and political intrigue. The event is somewhat of a temporary distraction from the harsh, cold truth that problems between the United States and its aggressive communist adversary continue to grow on a wide variety of fronts. At number six, a tie between crime and violence and race relations. Urban crime has become one of the major forces driving electoral politics today. On the racial front, where do we begin? Here's one. New Jersey police are under fire for their response to a fistfight after a black eighth grader was pinned to the ground and handcuffed while a white teen involved in the weekend mall scuffle was left seated on a couch. The fight, which took place Saturday in Bridgewater Township, New Jersey, was captured on video, sparking a racial brouhaha. At number five, a tie between electoral politics and the Durham report. The 2022 midterms are in full swing, and to a certain degree, speculation abounds about the 2024 presidential race. The central figure on both fronts continues to be Donald Trump seems to be relishing his role as either kingmaker or candidate. Conservative media on both radio and TV were abuzz this week, based on information contained in a report by DOJ special counsel John Durham, implying that Hillary Clinton's campaign spied on Donald Trump during the 2016 election and concocted false evidence to support what's being referred to as the Russia hoax. At number four, the January 6th investigation, tied with Trump under mounting pressure. The House January 6th committee issued subpoenas to six more individuals, including two members of the Trump campaign and four prominent GOP officials from battleground states, as part of its investigation into the U.S. Capitol attack on January 6, 2021. Meantime, Trump continues to face increasing heat from other investigations, including big ones in New York and Georgia, about both his political and business practices. At number three, the economy. The issues remain the same week after week. Inflation, supply chain breakdowns, and labor force shortages largely induced by the big quit. And studies continue to indicate that a significant segment of the population isn't looking to quit. Many people just want to stay home and continue working remotely. At number two, the Russia-Ukraine crisis. As we put the finishing touches on this installment of our show on Friday morning, the military pressure along the border between Russia and Ukraine continues to build prompting President Biden to claim that although everything possible is being done to deter military confrontation through diplomacy, the chances of Russia invading its neighbor are very high. So much for earlier reports that Russia was returning a number of its troops to their bases. Hell, there's already shooting going on. And at number one this week, COVID-19. The national conversation is still dominated by concern and debate over vaccines, mandates, masks, and politics. The Canadian trucker convoy demonstration in Ottawa, the capital of Canada, is presenting the teetering government of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau with the biggest crisis it's ever faced. It appears, at least at the moment, that Trudeau has lost control of the situation. Thank you, Kevin Casey from Talkers Magazine. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. COVID-19 and its seemingly endless array of subtopics remained at the top of the Talkers charts this past week, impacting politics, the economy, and of course, health. Let's pay a visit to Todd Feinberg, who hosts the daily afternoon show at our affiliate WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut. Todd, how's the COVID scenario playing out in your neck of the woods? Well, Ned Lamont, the governor, only gave up his emergency authority this week. So we're still very current and fresh. And he only gave up his emergency authority because 
he felt the political pressure. And my vision of how, when I'm imagining politicians deciding these things, I see them looking at poll numbers and saying, do we have the majority on our side on this, and which way is the trend going? And I think they still maybe have the majority on their side with masks and emergency powers. And Ned says virtually every other sentence. It's really chronic. We're just trying to keep you safe. I want to keep you safe. And that keeping you safe theme, I think, especially for women and and parents of of young children, they want safety from the government. (laughs) And they don't realize that if if you're willing to give the power to the government to make you safe, that you're also giving them the power to make you dangerous and and to make them dangerous and that's the that's the thing you have to be watching out for as a voter is the government being dangerous not that are they giving you enough stuff and are they making you safe enough so so I, he's withdrawn on the surface and in reality that power has now been taken by the legislature and some of the masking authority for schools has been transferred over to the state board of education, well, to the local boards of education, which in my mind are under the influence of the state board. And thus, there's been no actual change of policy, but there's been a little uh, shell game played by the government to to appease people. It's interesting you mentioned the thing about safety. Um, I'm paraphrasing. I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said something about uh, uh, if people are willing to... uh, trade uh, freedom for security, they wind up with neither. (laughs) Yes, I've never fully understood. That's why I love these periods of time where bad stuff is happening every day because there's always a silver lining. And I think the silver lining is that Americans have lost touch. We talk about freedom and liberty, and nobody knows what these things mean and, and what gave birth to them as concepts that are fundamental to the the American gestalt. But I, I think they're of critical importance. And we can see now that the government won't like, they're like mad dogs once they get their teeth into you. They don't want to give up anything. How would you have handled it if you were the governor uh, and this crisis came down um, looking back? Uh, because, you know, as a talk show host in a um, in a tight-knit community like Connecticut Talk Radio listenership, and, and I've spent so many years in my career broadcasting in Connecticut. Um, You're jealous. You want to go back in time, I can tell. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, it, it, one of the things about crises of this nature is what is hindsight is twenty twenty vision. So in terms of going back in time, imagine if we knew then what we knew now when this COVID thing first started. Not that we have all the answers, but we sure do know a lot of the pitfalls. But how would you have handled it? Uh, Would you be more um, along the lines of uh, uh, Governor DeSantis in Florida? What's your view of the way? Well, I wouldn't have looked to politicize it. I would have looked to be conscious of the proper role of government and always keep that in mind. Because there's this tension between the idea of doing shutdowns and telling people they have to put particular... uh, chemicals into their bodies that they might not, you know, there are worldwide prohibitions against the idea of forcing people to take drugs they don't want to take. So those are big steps and they shouldn't be treated lightly just because you see that uh, 54% of uh, your Americans in general and 73% of your voters support them. You should be thinking about good government, not how do you win your next election. But there was a clear signal from the Seattle nursing home situation and from New York that this was very dangerous for old people. 
And I did an interview recently with a former head of the Department of Public Health in Connecticut who was fired early on in COVID because she says she was pushing to protect seniors in nursing homes. And she wouldn't let go of it because she'd been briefed, she said, by the CDC to be conscious of the fact that this was a threat. And she said all the Department of Public Health heads around the country were on this call, and they were told protect seniors. However, doing something that requires leadership isn't something leaders are encouraged to do in our society because it represents political risk. And they like to do the scaredy-cat thing, Mm -hmm. which is get together with a collection of other states and all, and do the same thing and create this aura of, aren't we wonderful? We're all working together. But what they're really doing is avoiding making a decision. So the decision should have been, you protect those nursing homes, you wrap those things up, and you bring trailers in of National Guard, you give bonuses to staff and make them uh, stay there 24-7 for some period of time if you want to flatten the curve, because those were the people dying. 75% of the deaths are from people over the age of 65 or some stat like that. That's off the top of my head. And for the, the during that first year, when people were dropping like flies, it was old people who were held captive in long-term care facilities who were dropping like flies. So they were the ones who needed to be protected. And had they been protected, you could have been much looser with keeping the economy going and damaging way fewer lives and death tolls probably wouldn't have been as bad. Looking at the uh, at the region, uh, you know, Connecticut and New England, um, there's there's tremendous uh, cohesiveness in terms of the culture uh, of, of New England. And in some ways, it's uh, quite different than other parts of the country. How 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 is the labor thing going um, in terms of the economy? Uh, do people want to go back to work, or do you finding that um, this whole syndrome of people not wanting to go back to work and just work from home, which uh, has all kinds of repercussions? Um, how does it appear to you? What are your thoughts on that? It seems that a lot of people have just taken off, looking for greener pastures in terms of employment. So. Uh, in other words, there there are these numbers that indicate some large portion of the population is missing from the workforce. And we're assuming on a national basis that those are people who've made different decisions. They've realized they could get by on, on one person's salary instead of two, or they found a way to adjust their lives otherwise so that they don't need to be going to work. And some people have taken early retirement. There are all these different patterns, but in Connecticut it looks like people have turned and run and that the state in terms of its its growth potential moving forward has been permanently damaged for some period of time you know there's some long-term damage done where people have picked up and gone to you know we're right next to new york city we're right next to boston where young people want to be working and where their jobs are burgeoning and this huge demand for for people in the in this young fresh innovation economy and uh, people are just running out of the state. And these kinds of trends are the ones we have to look toward, not just what's happening right now, but what are the driving forces of right now that we're going to pay a big price for over time. That's talk show host Todd Feinberg. Heard afternoons on our affiliate in Hartford, Connecticut, the legendary WTIC. Coming up next, a Toronto-based broadcaster brings us his perspective on the COVID-connected political and social turmoil taking place in Canada. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison Wrap. 
Bernadette Duncan spent 26 years as a radio talk show producer. In her new book, Yappy Days, Behind the Scenes with Newsers, Schmoozers, Boozers, and Losers, she shares her adventures in the trenches of big-time talk radio during the changing backdrop of America's pre- and post-9-11 realities. This exciting story includes Bernadette's impressions of the quirky celebrity talk show hosts whom she served during her career. Larry King, Sally Jesse Raphael, Gil Gross, Tom Snyder, Lou Dobbs, Charles Osgood, and more. It's full of anecdotes about hundreds of high-profile guests from media, show business, and politics. Also quirky, ego-driven, and neurotic. Yappy Days, behind the scenes with newsers, schmoozers, boozers, and losers, an analytical look at the media, journalism, and the complex nature of ego. Get it now at Amazon.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap. The truckers protesting COVID mandates in Canada have triggered political turmoil in the national government of our neighbor to the north, a situation that has prompted the Justin Trudeau administration to take what many consider to be draconian methods in restoring law and order. To learn more, we turn to longtime Canadian radio broadcaster Mike Ben-Dixon in Toronto. Well, Mike, uh, the the... Activity in Canada is uh, central to the whole discussion of COVID, the economy, politics, the trucker situation. Now the prime minister seems to be in all kinds of controversies. you got a bird's eye view of it, and uh, you have a talk radio eye and ear. What, uh, what's going on there from, uh, from the perspective of uh, having your feet on the ground in Canada? What's the feeling of the people? And what's the latest in terms of all of this turmoil? I mean, it's, it's a complicated question that you ask because I feel that there are so many layers to this. There's the layer of the initial protest, which was, you know, uh, vaccine uh, mandates and passports for truckers. Um, I feel like that has now turned into a larger debate and protest of, you know, elites versus everybody else. I feel that um, the government has rushed into um, a decision of declaring kind of these Emergency Measures Act, which is completely unnecessary um, because they just have, haven't been able to get their hands wrapped around uh, this protest. I think in the beginning they thought it was going to be a couple of trucks um, that would roll through Ottawa, maybe spend a little bit of time um, on Parliament Hill, and, you know, blare their horns, but they've been there for going on, you know, 22 days, I believe it is now. Um, the encampments, um, and that's what they are, you know, have been well established. If you see any media reports or anything on social media, um, and I've been talking to my friends um, that are in Ottawa, and, you know, these are encampments that are set up. It's not just a, a bunch of trucks lined up. There are um, hot tubs and saunas and daycares and you know, bathrooms and, um, you know, spits in which, you know, entire pigs are being roasted. Um, these folks are there and set up for the long haul, and it's going to be a very complicated situation um, if and when uh, police decide to move in and try and figure out how to remove these individuals. As I said, it's a, it's a multi-layered, very complex situation. Um, one that, that involves a, a great amount of, of planning and, and thought process. And what I mean by that, Michael, is, you know, you can't simply go in, from a very logistical, simple perspective, you can't simply go in and remove 
hundreds of people from their trucks. So where do you house these hundreds of people? Um, the jails in the Ottawa area don't, there's not enough room. What do you do with the hundreds of big rigs? Where do you put them? And when you have arrested the adults, what do you do with the children? Um, so there's, there's so many layers to this that it's not just a matter of someone going in with, you know, tear gas um, and pulling these pe- people out of trucks. As mm-hmm. I said, there are children involved. There are families involved. Um, and so it's a very, very uh, complex situation and one that, quite frankly, I don't think authorities quite know how to handle at this point. What, what, what are the, the demands? What, 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 what could change that would, would dissipate this naturally? Um, what, is, what is the crux of the, of the complaint? I mean, the crux of the complaint started with, you know, vaccine passports and mandates of, of being able to prove that you've been vaccinated in order to cross the border. Um, that's where this all started, as I'm sure you know. I think right. that it has uh, morphed into something larger than that. And what I mean by that is I think that there are a growing number of people in these protests, in these blockades, in these encampments that want our government to take larger steps and bigger, um, you know, more uh, meaningful steps, if you will, to end any kind of lockdown, any sort of uh, COVID impacts as it relates to uh, businesses, as it relates to people being able to be free and being able to work and being able to conduct their lives as they choose. Do you think so there's a chance? Do you think there's a chance that can just happen? You know that that the, the lockdowns. No. No, so it's everybody's digging in. Uh, what about the public? Uh, you know, again, uh, being a broadcaster, you, you generally know how to read the public. Um, the average person who's not that political, um, what's the tone and, and the mood of the public regarding this uh, turmoil? You know, it's it's again, it's very. I think I think that it's very. Um, you know, two sided. One is that I think there are people that understand that. We're in a unique situation, right? Nobody prepared for COVID. Nobody knows how it's going to morph. Nobody knows whether there's going to be, you know, um, these different variants and how it's going to impact on people's health. I mean, we're in uncharted waters, and we have been for the last two years. So you have a group of individuals that can wrap their heads around that and can understand that there isn't a playbook, so to speak, for this. However, the growing number of people are on the other side of those folks that are fed up, that have had enough, that have done everything the government has told them to. We've worn masks. We've gotten vaccinated. You know, we've stayed home. We've kept our kids out of schools, et cetera. And nothing seems to have changed. And now we're at a point where I think a lot of people, quite frankly, are saying, if I can speak candidly, you. I'm done with you telling me what, how I should run my life, how I should survive. And I'm going to go about this my own way. And that is a growing number of people, in my opinion. And I think where government officials, politicians, and those that are in key uh, positions of making decisions failed is they aren't, in a very basic way, they aren't amongst the average people. Politicians are on a different level. They don't know what it's like to miss a mortgage payment, to have to lock the doors on your small business, to have to worry about whether or not your children are, are suffering through, you know, mental health issues because they're not with their friends at schools. You know, these are, are, are real issues for people. 
and politicians and scientists and healthcare officials just don't seem to grasp that, or even if they do, they aren't being sympathetic to those people. Um, and I think that's where you're starting to see this divide, and I think it's going to continue to separate. Um, and, you know, we're, sit- we're in a situation now where the Prime Minister is, is quite frankly, uh, making a lot of really harsh, rash decisions that never needed to be made in the first place. Um, he's enacted this war, you know, for lack of a better term, term, Emergencies Act, which is the first time it's ever been used. I mean, he didn't use these magical powers when COVID hit us. And now he's going to use them to try and move some truckers out of some streets in Ottawa. It just doesn't send the right message. And I think he's losing um, uh, greater numbers of supporters uh, every single day. That's Canadian broadcaster Mike Ben Dixon in Toronto. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. Canada is not the only country outside the United States creating a buzz in the national conversation. There's a lot going on in Great Britain, where I'm proud to say this program is heard on Podcast Radio UK. Joining us now is our international woman in the nation's capital, the executive director of the DC radio company, Victoria Jones. Victoria, what's going on across the pond? Well, the latest is that Prince Andrew and Virginia Jeffrey, who accuses him of sexually assaulting her three times when she was 17, in three different countries, by the way, uh, they've reached a, a, a settlement in principle of upwards of 10 million pounds, which is a considerable amount of dollars. The exact amount is undisclosed. And he does not admit guilt in this. Uh, and he does not apologize in this. He does regret his association with Jeffrey Epstein, the accused pedophile who died in prison mysteriously before his trial. But he does uh, no longer accuse her of initiating a baseless lawsuit or to achieve another payday. But so things have changed and he doesn't have to go to trial. Well, I mean, obviously, a lot of embarrassment is avoided by that. But, you know, settlements, especially large settlements, are generally interpreted as a admission of guilt, um, avoiding the, um, the circus and the spotlight on uh, the details of the guilt. But, um, I mean, I mean there's, there's little question in the mind of observers, and particularly, I would imagine, the British public, and, and I would even imagine the Queen, that uh, the dude's guilty. What do you think? Yes, I do think so. And there is anger in the British public. And I think there was a sense of, I'm just sick of this by the Queen. It is my platinum jubilee year. I've been on the throne 70 years and I'm not having it. You're not ruining it. Settle this now. Hmm. Well, you know, (laughs) she has certainly proven herself in the 70 years to be hardened to uh, the uh, the tug of war between her heart and her family and her duty as queen. Now, maybe I'm just getting that impression from movies I've seen because nobody really knows what's going on in the privacy of Buckingham Palace or wherever the heck they're living these days. Um, but she she's a she's a tough old goat, isn't she? She is a tough old goat um, who she admitted uh, in not an interview, but in a meeting this week, cannot move at the moment. She cannot walk Mm. where she received somebody. She's 95. So fair enough. Uh, But she 
I think, really wants this Platinum Jubilee to go well, not for herself, I think, so much as for the British public, who have undergone so much with strict lockdowns and really want a celebration and really will want to celebrate this time. And there are things going on throughout the year. And she was just not having it. Andrew has been stripped of his military titles, of a number of other patronages, and she just wanted this settled. Now, there are questions, and British people and members of parliament are quite angry about where is this money coming from, because he doesn't have this money. Now, it's believed that she is privately funding it. Is she privately funding all of it, or is some of it coming from the British state? A very interesting question. I would imagine if she has half a brain left in uh, her otherwise, you know, brilliant history of of, of being a world figure, that um, she would pay for it herself uh, and not subject herself to the scrutiny that would come with the um, the taxpayers having to uh, pay pay the freight on that. Um, she is. Am I correct? An extremely wealthy woman. I mean, I, I'm not sure how that works, but from what I've heard, she, the queen, the crown, the monarch, has a ton of dough in her coffers. She's got a ton of dough in her coffers. Yes, she owns a lot of uh, land, a lot of property. She has money. She can afford to pay this. And it's believed and it's been reported that she's paid a lot of, uh, it, it, he's already cost him a lot of money, that she's paid a lot of it already. He doesn't have this money. She's bailed him out on this and she's going to expect him to pay for that by living a low profile life in the shadows now. I would think he'd want to <laughs> after all this. I, I, I think he, he probably can't wait for time to erase this from, you know, the, the spotlight in terms of the, um, the international conversation. Um, just remarkable. Um, is she still popular? Is she still a popular figure among the British people? She's hugely popular. I think she's more popular than she's been for a very long time. Mm. But I think that he is a stupid man. Um, and I think that he, I don't think he's intelligent particularly, uh, unlike Charles, who I think is intelligent. William, who is intelligent, uh, Charles's son. Harry, who I think is intelligent. I don't think Andrew's particularly bright. I think he may in fact think that in a few years he can come back. He can never come back. No. no, as a matter of fact, I don't know whether after Queen Elizabeth uh, passes on, uh, whether any of her heirs could maintain a monarchy in the same manner that the monarchy has existed for the past 70 years. And a case could be made other than the abdication of Edward, you know, um, in terms of uh, her uh, father and mother uh, in their reign. Uh, they seem to have been pretty popular and, and kingly and queenly as well. Is there negative reaction to the Queen's recent statement or proclamation that uh, Camilla should have the title Queen when her husband becomes king? To me, surprisingly, no. I think there was a feeling that, yeah, she's done a good job. She really threw herself heart and soul into doing the work, which is public engagements, getting out, meeting the people, being heads of charities, doing all this kind of thing. That's what royals have to do. And she's really been seen as a good wife to Charles. So I think the public have sort of thought, yeah, yeah, she's proven herself. Yeah, let her be queen. And, and, and of course, being queen when you're the, the, the wife of the crown, 
the wife of the sovereign, is not the same as the kind of queen that uh, Queen Elizabeth II is, because she is the sovereign. So even though it's called the queen, there is a difference, uh, I would think, and I think that most people are aware of it. And of course, I understand there's another scandal brewing. It's not as big as the Andrew scandal, but it involves uh, Charles, and uh, somebody got paid um, a price to get some type of an honor. But uh, let's, uh, let's save that one for another day. That's the very colorful executive director of the DC Radio Company, Victoria Jones. Coming up next, a trip to the Big Apple and a visit with Broadway critic and political pundit Michael Riedel of WOR Radio. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. This report is brought to you by Genesis 2 Project, G2P. Recently, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a preliminary report on possible threats posed by UFOs, now known as Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and the progress the Department of Defense, UAP Task Force, has made in understanding any threats. Dr. J.C. Van Velkenberg is a former Los Alamos National Lab biophysicist who has been working with G2P to bring scientifically sound UAP data to the public. G2P has released the first scientifically authenticated documentation of UAPs, including images captured with infrared technology. Primo Forensics performed the digital forensic analysis. In tandem with the ODNI report, these data support the development of relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and government personnel upon encountering UAP. Visit Genesis2Project.com. Continuing now with the Michael Harrison Wrap as we discuss the hottest topics of the past week in the national conversation. Michael Riedel is the co-host, along with Len Berman, of the popular morning show on the legendary WOR in New York. Riedel is a conservative pundit, as well as a long-established theater critic in the Big Apple. Uh, how, how are you holding up under the conditions of these times? Well, uh, you know, we barrel through. I managed to get uh, COVID over the uh, Christmas break, uh, and I'd had my third uh, shot, so it was really nothing but a... Um, but a cold, but it had upended my Christmas plans to see my family. So, but I do think going forward, we're going to have to live, learn to live with this thing. We don't cancel plans because you have a have a little cough or a cold. You know, life does go on. Mm. And uh, that being said, uh, in terms of the broad strokes of day to day life, how is life in New York City? Uh, there's a new mayor. Uh, we're into a new year. What's going on from your perspective in terms of getting back to some type of normal life? Well, I've noticed in the last week or so, as the numbers of COVID have gone down and uh, this new strain of the virus seems to have faded, and the weather has been not so cold the last few days, at least where I am in the city, in the West Village, it is buzzing. I mean, restaurants are full inside and outside. There's a kind of sense of relief in the air that maybe you are going to get back to a more normal kind of life than we've known in the last two years. Uh, and I certainly hope so. But I distinctly remember this past summer, everybody thinking we're out of it, ready to go, 
all my friends on Broadway going back to work. Ticket sales were doing very well. Restaurants reporting uptake, uh, an uptick in the um, in business. And then all of a sudden, you heard these reports, this uh, new strain coming from South Africa. And man, when that hit, it hit New York hard. And uh, that just disrupted everything. So we went into another hole that, God willing, we're just climbing out of now. And what about um, in terms of street crime and public safety? Uh, last uh, the last couple of years, it's just been a terrible decline in terms of New York being among those cities where people didn't feel safe on the streets. There's a new mayor who's a former cop. Is, is there any progress uh, on that front? He certainly talks a good game, but we have yet to see um, what he's going to be doing. And, you know, crime is, is definitely a problem in the city, um, but where it really hurts New York City I, 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 people should not get the idea that the whole city's falling totally apart. This is not 1972 or 1973 by any stretch of the imagination. But what's terrible for uh, New York City and its businesses is that the perception is out there among people who don't live in the city that it's become a dangerous place. Yes. And that they factor in when they decide whether or not do we want to take that trip to New York or do we want to go to Orlando. And as long as that perception is out there, that is going to pull down the city to some extent. Now, I think Eric Adams was elected. The number one reason he was elected was because he said he was going to get a handle on crime because under de Blasio, I mean, de Blasio was just a, 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 the worst mayor in the history of this city, I think. And his attitude toward, towards crime was, it's all the pandemic. Once we're out of the pandemic, it's going to be fine. That's not the case. I can speak personally. I happened to catch um, train. And long, I went out to Long Island not too long ago, and I was at Port Authority here, um, a, a Madison Square Garden area. Mm-hmm. And I was appalled at how that place has deteriorated. I mean, just not only homeless people and, you know, but for the sake of God, go we, and you want to help those people, but people higher than kites on all kinds of stuff. I mean, just people urinating, defecating, falling down, talking to themselves. And then I got on the subway platform, and there was this nice woman standing next to me, and she said, please don't, please, please don't leave me. And I looked around, and like five or six guys just walking up on the platform talking to themselves, and these are the kind of people, and you read this in the paper, who they could snap and suddenly push you in front of the train, which mm-hmm. has happened here in the city. Mm-hmm. What did you, you do? You have to what? get a handle yeah. on, on these mental health issues. What did you and do? I don't know what the city is doing then. What did you Sorry? do? What did you do in that case? It's fascinating. I'm just thinking if a woman came up to me on a platform and said, "Please don't leave me," that's a tough yeah. spot to be in, isn't it? I, I, I said, "Well, let's just go back up against the wall. Let's get away from the platform, and you know, just talk to me and don't make eye contact." And right. when I say don't make eye contact, these people were walking back and forth. Oh, and you know, if you make eye contact with some of them, then you can be in real trouble. I said, "So just talk to me. Just talk to me." And then we got on the train, and there were three more of these unfortunate souls on the train as well. So I have not seen it that bad since the 80s when, when I was here in New York. Mm-hmm. It really is pretty dramatic, Michael. Speaking of drama, uh, one of the things that um, I enjoy in following your career is how you have um, well, one part of your uh, focus is uh, in the theater and the arts, and the other part of your focus is in politics. Let's talk about the art of politics. You sure. are, Every time I talk to you, I'm always delighted that no matter what, and even though you are a conservative, you are not a fence-sitter. 
you you seem to be very fair, and um, you don't seem to have, you don't seem to be partisan, and um, you don't seem to give your heart to any one politician. What do you think is going on right now, going forward, with the midterm elections just over the horizon, and mm-hmm. the presidential election just over the next horizon? In terms of GOP politics, with Mitch McConnell and um, Pence. You know, basically breaking yeah. ranks with Trump, et cetera. What do you think? Yeah, I thought that was significant for Mitch McConnell to come out and say that uh, January 6th was a violent insurrection. I think those were her his words. And Pence saying, uh, you know, he warned President Trump about this or he was not going to do that. That shows you that, and, you know, especially Mitch McConnell, that guy is as shrewd as they come in Washington. So that tells you you're getting the sense that just maybe he doesn't think Trump is going to run again, and that Trump's holding power over the Republican Party is beginning to is beginning to wane. I'm not so sure McConnell would have come out and said what he did if he didn't um, think that that's what's going on. I think the Republicans are still in a very good position to take back the House and the Senate, and that is largely the Democrats' fault, because the Republicans haven't done too much. They haven't presented too many proposals for things. But the Democrats found themselves in this very precarious position where Biden decided to go very, very bold, very bold with a very left agenda to, to suit the progressives. But he should have taken into account the power of, um, of mansion and cinema. Those, those people come from red states. They cannot be seen going into the Alexandria Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez category, because if they do, they are going to lose their seats. And Biden, you know, what's the old line? You never put it for a vote unless you know you've got the votes. And when Biden wants to compromise with people like Manchin, okay, say we can whack it down a bit. Maybe we should break it off. I know you don't like this. The progressives lost their mind and they were not supporting Biden. So Biden suddenly found himself in a position of allegedly the most powerful man on the planet, having no power in Washington to get his package and his agenda through. And now it seems to be stalled out and they're going to have to break it up, but it's going to take time. And it shows, it contributes to the perception out there that I think of Americans have that this is, this is a weak president. This is a weak presidency. And he's not been helped by Kamala Harris because she's deeply unpopular. Mm. So I think the, the Democrats have some real trouble on their hand going forward. Now, my gut tells me that Trump is not going to run for the White House again. You know, he, he is older. Uh, he has more energy than Biden, but he is older. And I don't think he wants to put himself through the grind of the primaries, but he wants to be the kingmaker. So he, he wants you to go down to Mar-a-Lago and kiss the ring, and he'll give you his, his blessing. I mean, my money right now would be on DeSantis. I think he gets some points for doing the best he could against COVID, but without shutting down the Florida economy. I think when we look back on this, places like New York, the more blue states where, you know, people like Cuomo shut everything down. At first, I think people thought, okay, that's fine. But that shutdown went on and on. And then when people people begin to lose their jobs and their restaurants go out of business, people think there must have been another way to find a proper balance between trying to keep us healthy but not causing all of the problems that you do when you completely shut down an economy. I mean, I know... You know, my friends on Broadway, they had no income for a year and a half. No income, nothing. You know, and you can imagine the other people in the other businesses that were shut down that had no income. 
And I thought DeSantis, I was down in Florida last winter, and I thought it seemed pretty good. Okay, wear your mask here and there, but you can still go about restaurants. You can still live your life to some extent. And now that's par- partly because of the weather. But I think DeSantis gets points for not taking over the economy and closing it down and acting, frankly, like an emperor as a uh, the unmissed Andrew Cuomo did when the pandemic hit. Yeah, it's funny how things turned out for them. Do you do you think that it's yeah. possible between those two? Do you think it's possible that McConnell um, is breaking ranks with uh, Trump not because he he thinks that Trump's not going to run, but because he thinks Trump will run, and he's trying to um, uh, steer the party more in a direction that it has a chance to win in twenty four, maybe even in twenty two, uh, so that people like DeSantis can move to the front of the pack comfortably without uh, Trump muddying up the water or maybe running and losing to the Democrats. You know, a year and a half is a long way yeah, <laughs> off. Yeah, uh, yeah well, I mean, we, we predict that our peril, but um, I still think if Trump decides to run, he's going to be very tough to beat. He has a core, solid base, something like 30, 35 percent. And someone like DeSantis, who, let's face it, you know, is not really that known across America yet, right? You know, those mm-hmm. of us who follow politics know him. Trump just comes out there so strong that I think anybody else is going to have a tough time gaining on him. Now, can he win in the general election? Well, he won one, but he lost another one. Yeah, well, that's the question. So we don't know where we are. And it's gonna, but it's going to be, it's going to depend, of course, on who runs against him. I personally don't see how Biden can go another four years. I just, I don't see it. No, I don't see Biden. And, I don't see Harris uh, replacing Biden. I, I can't see either of them. But um, no. there's always but Hi- I think there's you, always Hillary Clinton. Put, <laughs> I think if you put Trump up against Hillary Clinton, he can still beat her. If you put Trump up, Trump up against Elizabeth Warren, he can beat her. Mm-hmm. I don't know who's on the Democratic side that really could pose a big threat to Trump, as I see it right now. That's Michael Riedel, the morning show co-host on WOR in New York City. The conversation you just heard with Michael Riedel is excerpted from this week's installment of my podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview. To hear the entire conversation, please visit mhinterview.com. You're plugged into the Michael Harrison rap. We have time for one more. The latest big tech happenings being discussed on talk shows. We're joined now by the producer of this program, as well as the associate publisher of Talkers Magazine. He's an attorney and a professor who teaches media law at Western New England University School of Law. He's also my son, Matthew B. Harrison. So, Matthew, it seems Facebook is always in the news. Um, I understand that they're um, getting sued. A couple of cases going on. What's happening with Facebook? Facebook or or Meta is getting it from all sides. They're getting sued by the state of Texas for a relatively new offense involving biometric markers, uh, which is really about their tagging photo system and how it was violating users' privacy. Hmm. And uh, they're just settling an old case uh, coming out of 2012 where they installed cookies that allowed tracking beyond the actual usage of Facebook so that when you were on other websites, they were still tracking you. I understand that that case, I believe, is a $90 million um, settlement or or, um, penalty. Yes, and uh, that's not even the biggest one that Facebook has had to deal with in the past year. That uh, was $650 million. Do you foresee more of this type of litigation against Facebook going forward? Yes, I do. And in fact, it seems that uh, so does Zuckerberg as they're talking about spinning off the actual Facebook company and then the new metaverse plans. 
do you get the feeling that um that, that that people are turning on Facebook or Meta, that um, they're more prone to have um, uh, whoever it is that is a plaintiff against them be sympathized by the public? Yeah, I do believe that the tide has turned with regards to Facebook's popularity and uh, being the the high and mighty power that they, they had been. What about with young people? Um, are, do you think that that's where they're most vulner- vulnerable in terms of um, their future customers or users? Uh, yes, young people are fleeing Facebook uh, for uh, media like uh, TikTok and or uh, Snapchat. That's the producer of this show, the associate publisher of Talkers, an attorney and a law professor, Matthew B. Harrison. And that about does it for this latest installment of the Michael Harrison Wrap, an overview of the national conversation, looking back at the week of Monday, February 14th through Friday, February 18th, 2022. Looking ahead, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about next week, including the ever-lurking unknown factor that unanticipated surprise story that can take the national conversation spinning off in a totally unexpected direction. We sure do live in interesting times. I can be reached via email at michaelatalkers.com. My podcast, The Michael Harrison Interview, can be heard at mhinterview.com. And if you want to stay in touch with the inner workings of the talk media industry, visit talkers.com. The Michael Harrison Wrap. Our producer is Matthew B. Harrison. Thank you for listening. The Michael Harrison Wrap is a production of Good Phone Communications presented in association with Talk Media Network and Talkers Magazine. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. <laughs>